So there are definitely companies that have tried this and tried to figure out different patterns. So I think it's going to be, it used to be just come to the office every day. That was the answer. Very easy. And now we're going to have to be much more intentional about why do we want to be in person? When do we want to be in person? Who do we need? And what's the trade-off? This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armin will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Ellie Fields with me today. And Ellie is the Chief Product and Engineering Officer at SalesLoft. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Ellie, tell us a little bit about yourself and then a little bit about the company, what you guys do, so we can understand the context. Yeah, sure. I'll just tell you one or two things about myself. My passion is building products and building teams. And I think those two things go together. It's hard to build great products without building great teams as well. I spent about 12 years at Tableau Software before I came to SalesLoft. And I'd, I'd done some other things before that, went to business school, kind of engineering background, took a little detour in investment banking and VC, which was interesting, but helped me understand that that wasn't actually where I wanted to spend my time because I do like building things. And I came to SalesLoft because... SalesLoft was this unique opportunity where they were trying to serve an underserved market, which are sellers, and do that in a way that was really human-centric and focused on the joint value you can get between a buyer and a seller. You know, sometimes sellers get a bad rap as people who are just trying to push something, but I think selling is really fundamental to any business enterprise. And we were trying to help those folks, many of whom were using Excel to kind of track who they were talking to and next steps and so on help them with workflow. And what really uniquely got me excited was the opportunity to take that workflow and infuse data throughout. So I am a data geek kind of at the core and loved my time at Tableau and working especially with public data and Tableau Public. But I, I saw this opportunity to put data really where people were working at the moment of decision. And I think that's going to be the future of data, I think, is to really, if you're going to get the impact, you're going to do it that way. The opportunity at SalesLoft was great excited customers, a great team, great culture, and the opportunity to provide this kind of disruptive product in sales, which, which we call sales engagement. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned about the data. Data can be kind of very structured or can be more like not necessarily rows and columns, that if you think about workflow, Workflow is not necessarily the data that you generate out of a workflow. It's not necessarily, you know, can be super structured. Now, how do you see the data being generated in the companies or the products in general, products in SaaS market that represents what people do? 
are they mostly created around being optimized for data entry? Are they created to be optimized for workflows? Are they created or maintained to be optimized for analytics? Or you don't see any kind of difference in these optimizations from your perspective. These three can be optimized at the same time with the same data. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that's one of the major areas of disruption in the industry, which is apps used to be one of the three. And in fact, I would say that the more legacy apps were really optimized for data entry. You think one of, think about one of the most powerful, one of the largest categories of apps in the SaaS space. In fact, where SaaS started was with CRM. And CRM was disruptive at the time, but it, it was really a window into the database more than anything else. It was not optimized for workflow, and it required sellers to put a lot of data in, to do a lot of data entry. What we see in the new generation of apps, and that SalesLoft is one of them, is where you're really putting workflow at the center. You're putting the user at the center. You've got the core of what you're trying to do is help a person work better. And when you take that perspective, it doesn't matter where the data is. So for example, a lot of the modern apps will integrate a lot of different kinds of data. We work with emails and calendars in, in Google and Outlook. We work with meetings platforms like Zoom and Teams. We work with CRM data from Salesforce Dynamics and so on. And I think that's really a hallmark of modern SaaS because it's not about this app and the silo of this data. It's about what are you trying to get done and what data do you need to do it? And because data ecosystems are open now, you can get that data at the right point. You don't need to own that data. I think there will be multiple systems of record for different kinds of data, but you need to be able to get the data that person needs to do whatever they need to do, take the action, make the decision, and put it right there for them. And that used to be a lot more separate. You'd have a workflow app, which maybe was really a data entry app to your question, and then you would have a data app or an analytics app. Modern flows really do data capture automatically and let people focus on what they're good at. So the trend is for data to be more elastic, to be more flexible, to be more distributed, and we see that in a number of places. At the same time, People need things to be more self-service and users want to be in control, have more flexibility. And that adds additionally to the need for data to be flexible, to be elastic, because at the same time, you know, if I wanted to do, get things done, I'm deciding on what kind of data I wanted to deal with, what kind of fields I need to create, what kind of workflow I need to have. And all of that adds to that data being more fluid and more distributed. And I think, as you said, the modern way of looking at data is just not to be as restricted at old days, like only rows, columns, superstructured, one source, whatever. So those kind of things that we had in the past, but now we are in a totally different era. Is it your experience that all of these barriers are going to be removed more and more in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And you've touched on unstructured data, which is really one of the most powerful advances that the industry's been in. The ability to transcribe something that's been said and get insights from it is really powerful. I think unstructured and structured data have a lot of seams and inter intersections. For example, you could take a lot of conversations between buyers and sellers. This is something we do in our platform. And look at all the transcripts and say, how many times was this certain product name mentioned? And maybe it's a lot more or a lot less than another product name. You've actually created structure out of unstructured data, which again is massively powerful, but it's also powerful to go back to the unstructured data itself in that original transcript. 
one of the things that we've learned over the years, having watched people work with data again and again and again, is data is always representing something in the real world. The data on its own is an abstract concept. It doesn't exist. So data means something. In our app, data is anything from the number of times you reached out to someone by email or phone or SMS, in addition to what you said when you reached out. So that's structured and unstructured. And that's just one example of of many different kinds there. But to really get the power from the data at the time you need it, you actually need to traverse up and down. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you think about coaching an employee, which is something that many kinds of professions do, but is really important in sales because you tend to hire a lot of people. Sometimes they don't have experience in the field or they usually don't know your product coming in, right? And so you kind of got to do a lot of coaching. And there's a lot of data that shows us that if you coach, you have higher close rates and shorter sales cycles. So it's powerful, but it's hard. And what we find managers need to coach effectively is they need a few things. They need to see all the data. They need to see everything their seller's doing not just the meetings they're having, but the emails they're sending. They need to see all the interactions between the buyer and the seller in aggregate because there's probably thousands a week and you can't look at those one by one. But then you need to be able to drill all the way down. So say a seller is sending a lot of emails, but not closing a lot of deals. You want to say, hey, let's look at your emails. Let's look at the conversation you're having when you get that meeting booked and you actually talk to the buyer. There's something somewhere in there in either the structured data or the unstructured data that's the clue. Now, it may be that that person's just somehow not reaching out enough, you know, not responding fast enough. It may be something more on the structured side, but data is really only useful when you have it in that moment when you're doing a thing. And if you can go all the way from the high level, all the way down the bottom and back up. One other place we see this, and I bring this up because I think it's just this classic example of how SaaS can change a market. Forecasting is something every company does and they all hate it. I challenge anyone to find a seller or a sales manager who says, gosh, we have our forecasting meeting today and I love it. It's my favorite meeting of the day or of the week. We watched people have a bunch of these meetings and we noticed a few things. One, it was all done in Excel. So again, classic opportunity to take this really manual process, highly error prone, and move it to a kind of a more best practice flow. But we also saw people, everyone from the chief revenue officer down, doing a lot of fact-finding, finding basic data in these meetings, things like, okay, when did Jim last call that buyer? Has Sarah sent the follow-up on that meeting and made sure that we've confirmed the other meeting, right? These are things that sellers do every day. And in the forecast meeting, we were observing that the entire team was trying to find these basic facts rather than have conversations about the business itself. Like, hey, if we want to close this deal, we need to make sure that we bring finance into the tent on the buying side. Hey, it seems like we don't have the right set of people in the buying group. Whatever that business-focused conversation that can really move that along wasn't happening because people were stuck trying to gather the data. And so in forecasting, what you classically want to do is you want to traverse all the way from a time trend or something about what is our number going to be this quarter? And maybe it's a roll-up of all your reps and an AI forecast. Maybe it's a quota number. And then you want to be able to go down by region or manager or product and go down again to rep and go down to deal and even go all the way down to the last meeting that happened. And then you want to go all the way back up. And it's, that's the kind of power that a data-enriched workflow app can give you. And all of a sudden, forecast conversations change, right? And they become ways to move business ahead, to prioritize. They become interesting rather than a painful grinding exercise in trying to figure out what happened last week. And how, as you provide all of this flexibility and the platform that focuses on the workflow, 
what challenges come with it when you look at that kind of workflow being centered and then you still wanted to, for example, communicate with other applications? You still wanted to create analytics? You still wanted to make this more self-service, more no-code style? You still wanted to make it extensible and expandable? Is there any particular thing there that from your perspective, if I'm a SaaS company, I'm building something and I wanted to put workflow at the center, I need to be mindful of other side effects. Yeah, there's a lot. I think the one that really comes to mind is in a SaaS application, you want to move fast and you want to deliver a single flow. I think it's been an anti-pattern in a lot of software to get really custom, deliver multiple versions to multiple customers. You can't really do that in a SaaS app and be successful. So that brings up the question of how customizable is your product? And the point of view I always take is that we want to have an opinion on best practices. When you deliver technology, you're not just delivering bits and bytes in an app somebody works in. You are studying the field, right? Hopefully you're watching customers. You're looking at best practice. You're learning about best practice. And I believe you should be encoding that into your app as the default. So if somebody just bought your software and did the minimal setup possible, which hopefully is very fast setup, they are running a best practice workflow. We certainly try to do that in sales with sales loft, right? We try to understand what is the best practice flow. From coaching, we look at outcomes to aggregate metrics. And again, all the way to drill down. There's a lot of examples of this. And we spend a lot of time with sales leaders in our companies and elsewhere, in our company and elsewhere, and across the industry to try to really come up with that. But it's never going to work for everybody, especially as you go to bigger organizations. And so then you ask the question, what customizability? You want that best practice flow in the default the opinionated flow, and then the right set of knobs. In most workflows, you could add probably thousands of knobs to any module, settings, configurations. And that's just going to be overwhelming and get underused. And so to me, that's one of the hardest questions to navigate. And one of the most important questions is, what's the core flow you're supporting? How do you allow modifications of that flow? When are you going too far? And at some, then talking a little bit about the product management, since you are managing engineering as well as the product management. In some organizations, in most organizations I have seen, normally the person who manages the product management is not the same person who manages the engineering. So these two are normally two. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of managing both of them? Yeah, absolutely. And I've done a little bit of both. My background is more on the product management side. And just to be clear, I have great leaders in both product management and design who are experts in their field. Sorry, product management and engineering also in design because I have a leader of research and design and customer support. My thinking here is that those two pieces have to come together at some point, right? Now, hopefully you're running agile teams. I always think of three legs of the stool in the team, right? You've got engineering, PM and design, and hopefully they're working together every day and have a great relationship. Sometimes you bring research in, sometimes you bring other pieces in. But hopefully those people in your core teams are really autonomous, aligned, and accountable. Those are the ways I try to talk about how we run our teams. So hopefully those teams are the core and they're running your business day to day. And then there's always going to be things that you need to push in another direction or invest more in or pull back on, or there's just a legitimate difference of opinion. I think part of the reason I always want design, engineering, and PM at the same table is because they will come at it from different places. And if they always agree, something's going wrong. You want a little bit of tension between those roles. Now, hopefully a very respectful, friendly tension, 
where people can push each other and get to better decisions. But you do want some tension. And there are legitimately things that will escalate. Like classic one is, do we do this tech debt before we do this feature? And there's no one answer. It depends on the code. It depends on the customer. It depends on 10 or 12 different things. So that's why you need experts in the space and local owners. Those things are going to rise up between product and engineering. And they will either hit the CEO or they will hit the person like me who reports to the CEO. I'm a strong believer that they should hit the person who reports to the CEO and that the product team should go aligned and together and not have the CEO breaking ties because it's not the right role for the CEO. And often, if, especially if the CEO doesn't come from that world, it's hard for them to, to evaluate, but it's also just, it's not what you want your CEO spending time on. That's a great point. So, and you're right, in many organizations, depending on the DNA of the organization and the structure of the organization, actually the model that you talk about can work very well because essentially the person that is dedicated and has experience with all of these aspects from design to production and engineering to product management can be the better, more dedicated, more helpful person to really look at all three aspects and just coordinate them and create that harmony that actually you need to have as a symphony. Absolutely. Now, let's say, for example, you wanted to work with a smaller organization. Many of these SaaS companies are not necessarily as big as having all of these, you know, a structure and especially when they start, they just wanted to start and they wanted to have a small team in place. And in that case, from your perspective, when you are working and you're looking at this kind of organization, smaller organizations, how would you structure that kind of company to be in aspect of product management versus engineering and design and everything? Would you go with the very traditional way of doing that? Do you have some kind of, this is really the way I would do it if it's a regular CRM, say, for example, SaaS company wants to start today? Yeah, the great thing that has happened in development, one of the many, including you know DevOps and other great things, is the Agile movement. And I will be the first to say that Agile isn't perfect, but it's also the best we've found in terms of ways of working. And it's, it means different things to different people and people can make it their own. I would, at a small company, certainly start with a small agile team, right? Probably under one manager. Again, you want those three legs of the stool, design, product management, and engineering. Sometimes those three legs at very small all are in one person. You find that one person who can code, but has a great sense for the customer and a bit of design chops too. And that person is actually the manager and all three legs of that stool at once. And then you grow up a little bit, maybe get a, a couple of more engineers, maybe you get a specialized PM or designer at some point. But I think it really all comes down to the team. And again, I'll say the autonomy of the team is really important. And if that autonomous team or those autonomous teams are aligned with each other and with what the company is trying to achieve and the go-to-market and all of that, and they are accountable for their results and really delivering and being accountable to business outcomes, then I think you can replicate that model all the way up. I mean, at some point you need you know a manager and maybe managers of managers and so on, but you kind of keep that structure together. On my team, like I said, I've, I have a head of engineering, a head of PM, a head of design, and a business manager. We bring HR in as well at our level. And when you talk about autonomy, you can really go deeper and just say, right, and this team is autonomous. I want also some of these people inside that team to have that kind of autonomy 
and then they can work in a more autonomous way rather than just everybody dependent upon some maybe direction coming from somewhere else. What is your philosophy on that? Are you really trying to build a team? Do you think the team that is more autonomous is more scalable? Or do you think the team has to be autonomous, but individuals within the team needs to essentially work within the team, within that kind of very tight structure that they have? I think collaboration is fundamental to any organization of any size. So whether you work more autonomously on your work or you're working as part of a team, you need to be able to communicate kind of what's going on and where you're going to some level, to some degree. And, and I call it some of that's alignment. The great thing about the way Agile works is I can completely punt on that question of within the team, do people want to work highly autonomously or together? Because I think that that's an answer that the team itself can answer. And it has to do mostly with the nature of the work, right? Like there's kinds of work that you are shipping that having five people working autonomously, but aligning might be fine. My experience is more often you do want people working in small teams, scrum teams, you want people to give feedback on designs, right? You want people to give, to understand the, the customer problem. So there's some amount of collaboration. The work itself usually drives how much collaboration, but also how the team wants to work. Agile teams typically set up their own norms and working patterns within some guardrails in the organization, right? I mean, if you're using JIRA, everybody has to use JIRA, et cetera. Like there's some things that you need to just do, but then teams to a large degree, you get to make the call about when do we meet and how do we meet? And are we all running autonomously and coming together once a week, or do we prefer to kind of do things more collaboratively? And for the most part, that really works because from where I sit, I can't tell a given team. There's just no way for me to. And I would say even the manager, I think, is part of that decision making. But even the frontline manager is not the person who decides that. I think it's the team together who decides it. Yeah. So the key is alignment based on what I understand. The rest is just the style of work and the DNA of the team. But what needs to be in place with no doubt is fully everybody needs to be aligned with the team and what the team is trying to accomplish. Right. And having the relevant context to make decisions. And definitely there's times when you've got to make sure that you're shipping a lot of things together, right? With the right cohesiveness and so on. So there are meetings and things that sometimes have to take place or review reviews and approvals, especially if you're trying to allocate money for a big new project. But generally, my view of a healthy team is that the context is there, the alignment, ha there's some mechanisms for alignment and accountability, and the teams are building their backlogs, they are executing, they are running autonomously. Now, being a person with a good understanding of data, and of course, applying data to real world, to customers, to outside the product, I wonder what would have been the impact of that data culture to manage internally the organization that you are managing, right? So now some people are very metric oriented and may apply metrics everywhere in the organizations they manage. And within your team or different teams that you are managing, how far you go to really create these kind of metrics there that can tell you how the organization is doing, if the alignment is good, if the productivity, if the velocity is there, how do we compare this quarter with last quarter from many different aspects? Or do you think that it may have pros and cons? And what's your take on applying this metric-oriented and data culture internally? 
Great question. Data culture, I think sometimes misunderstood. I think about data culture as just having the right information to make decisions. So for example, in, in engineering, we'd be irresponsible if we didn't monitor our systems, right? If we just said, hey, philosophically, we prefer not to measure our software in production. I don't think that would be an acceptable answer for our customers if our system went down and we couldn't get it back up. So I, th- I think there's a certain level of information you just need in any organization. Likewise, in a sales organization, you, you need to know if you're, what revenue you're generating, right? So there's, I think data is essential to the work we do. I tend to think of a data-informed culture rather than data-driven. And so what do I mean by that? I do think looking at velocity is important. I do think definitely looking at performance of different things that you ship, right? Whether they be capabilities or performance improvements or whatnot, it would be crazy to spend three months of a team time, which is quite a bit of money on something and then never check if it actually worked. But I hesitate to goal on those things. And the reason why, especially in an engineering organization, fundamentally, a lot of what we're doing is we're creating the future, right? And we're working with unknowns. And so I think that we can be accountable to things like providing features that very important customers want, right? And making sure that we can bring in some revenue, making sure that we we're thoughtful about the way we build things. But then a lot of the data becomes a way to understand, for example, velocity. I would never goal teams on velocity. And in fact, it's hard to even compare one team to another on dev velocity, different ways you measure it. But what you can do is you can say, hey, this team has been running at a certain level. And now all of a sudden the velocity fell off. What's going on there? And hopefully the team itself is doing that. And it may be a key person's on PTO or, you know, it could be any number of things, but I think it's, we have a responsibility to look at the information that we can to try to understand what's going on. And great organizations and especially great product and engineering organizations continuously improve. It's one of the fun things about being in our industry. You can't just come out day one and 30 years later be doing things the exact same way. You have to keep pushing. There's always a better way. And data helps us figure that out. We see a number of things. Of course, this is a very dynamic market, dynamic technology. We see a lot of changes from subscription model that is now very de facto in the market and SaaS products coming with that kind of model from cloud that is now well accepted from all aspects. And people have less concern about security, less concern about The cost of it is more known now, and they can better understand how it works, performance, everything else from many different aspects, but also, for example, working with the team in a distributed model, right? So that's another kind of parameter that has impacted many of these SaaS companies. It used to be that you have all of the team members coming to the office and you're working together and you start in a place geographically, and then you bring all the co-workers from that place. Right now, it's maybe less relevant. It's still in some companies, that's the case. But there are many other companies that now they are more remote. And that also brings different kind of expertise to your team. And you have more options to bring those expertise to the team based on what you need, not necessarily based on their location. And you are not restricted to that. At the same time, it may increase the need for having some of these benchmarks, having some of these metrics, because now you need to be able to manage it. And you need not just internally that you may know exactly what's going on, but also communicating with other parts of the company. And everyone wants to kind of know, of course, you also work with the sales organizations and you know Whatever comes to sales is very easy to put some numbers around it and measure it and everything else. 
when it comes to engineering, development, product management, all of that stuff, and then going remote and working with a very distributed team, and how do you see that kind of impact in kind of where we are going? And then and in conjunction with the metrics question that we just surfaced. Such a good question. I think everyone is trying to figure this out right now. It's definitely different roles want different things. And in the, you mentioned the sales world, the more junior sellers just coming into the field, you know, they typically were in a room, you know, with a manager walking around and giving them feedback or a pat on the back. I think for roles like that, there is a gap, right? When you're just learning, you don't even know what questions to ask. And you could say the same thing for junior engineers right out of college. Like they just don't know. And it can be hard to set up a 30 minute meeting or ask a question in Slack. I was talking with a colleague, at, a former colleague at dinner this week, and we were talking about how you used to be able to just kind of walk into a room and just see somebody frustrated, like visibly frustrated, right? And blocked. And you could say, hey, what's up and what's going on? And, and maybe get them unblocked. Or maybe they're just having a bad day. It's so much harder in the remote world. That said, there are a lot of roles that don't need it as much. I mean, I think about more senior engineers, many of whom wanted to work at home even before the pandemic. Field sellers, people out in the field typically didn't go into an office every day. And so I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does do people need? What does the organization need? And how do we do that? One thing I do see suffer in this world is connection and belonging and some of that ambient context, right? Some of that ambient context around, you know, we value what customers say, right? We interact in a certain way, you know, this, you know, maybe highly questioning each other, but respectful, like, some of that stuff is harder to get across. And so what I think about on my team, because in product and engineering, I think it's probably one of the places it's just not going back. I know Google and others are trying, but in most of the industry, it ain't going back. And as a mom of two kids, I really appreciate that. I get to sometimes have five minutes of breakfast with them that I never got to have before when I was in an office every day. And I get a lot of work done. But we have experimented with things like coming together once a quarter by team. I think that team level interaction is really important. We took a bunch of teams down to Mexico, driven by the teams themselves. I kind of went along, but the teams themselves had a, a sink in Mexico earlier this year with some of our teams based down there. And you can just see how much more happens in those times. I mean, not only the we get to sit down and have dinner or drink or a conversation that, that wasn't scheduled on a Zoom, but even the whiteboarding, right? And the, the investigation and the what ifs, right? Those things, it is harder for those to happen in a Zoom. So the only thing I'm certain of is we haven't figured it out. I'm also certain that we're not going back to what was in 2019. And I think there'll be a lot of great experimentation here. I read a lot of, from folks online and I'm happy to share things. And I think it's going to be a lot of great practices coming out over the years. So you don't think, for example, there will be a new wave of companies that they say, you know what, we are getting back to office, everyone will be at the office, we get together, we get things faster, and then we prove to the rest of the world that we can do much better job, work more efficiently, create better results. You don't think that will happen? I'm sure that will happen. And I think there's also a couple of factors there. One, if I were going to start a four-person company right now, I would start it in one place, in one room. I probably wouldn't want everybody to come in every day, but maybe two, three days a week to get that connection and the, you know, the mind meld and everything else. I think some organizations will end up doing that and people will select into those because there are people who want to go in every day. And gosh, I don't think I would have had any social life in my 20s if I didn't have a job. And kind of embarrassing to admit that, but I worked a lot and working at home would have been pretty miserable in those days. 
So I think some people will self-select into that and some organizations will self-select there. And they may be more productive and they may not be more productive, right? Because if some of the best engineers in the world decide to live in, I don't know, Scottsdale, Arizona or wherever, and you can't get that person, you may lose some productivity. And a lot of product and engineering people are highly productive on Slack and in Zoom and whatnot. And so I think there will be different models that emerge and companies and people will self-select into it. And there will be some use cases, again, that very small company, maybe you have a big, hot problem and you choose as an organization to get everybody in the same city, put them up in a hotel and get in a room for a week. I know I I think Atlassian used to do two weeks together every quarter pre-pandemic, and I, I believe that was their cadence and they were fully remote. So there are definitely companies that have tried this and tried to figure out different patterns. So I think it's going to be, it used to be just come to the office every day. That was the answer. Very easy. And now we're going to have to be much more intentional about why do we want to be in person? When do we want to be in person? Who do we need? And what's the trade-off? More dimensions are going to be available. So it's a multidimensional kind of, in, there are so many aspects to it that from a scalability, how can you scale faster the organization? How can you grow better? How can you get more sophisticated, complex problems solved? But as you said, maybe at the start, that's not what you want. At the start, you want to have a kind of quick launch. You want it to really go fast at the beginning, but then the priorities change. But you're right. There are so many aspects to it that there is no simple question and they're yet to be seen based on some experiments, based on some data, case studies, and we learn more and more. But probably the right answer would be a combination and the way you want to optimize and the culture. And especially the culture. It'll be interesting to watch too. I look forward to seeing all the different models that get put together. Fantastic. So I would like to ask you, Ellie, about some books that you may recommend or a book that you may have in mind to recommend to the audience. Yeah, sure. I read probably dozens of books a year. I I love reading. I'll recommend two, if that's okay, that I've read and kind of stand out in my mind for this audience. One is Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows. It's kind of a classic systems thinking book. And for anyone who's been in engineering or computer science or feels like that, the first, say, quarter is probably a review, a little slow. But then the book goes into time-tested and researched ways to influence systems and to adjust systems or not adjust systems. And I think is a kind of structured way of thinking about systems. I think it's excellent. As humans, we tend to look at the surface, right? Like if we're not working well together, I think you don't like me, or you just don't want to work very hard or whatever it is. But usually there's a systems problem at the core. And the more you can understand the system, you can understand why certain things are happening the way they are and address it. So I love that book. The other book that I think would be really relevant for this audience is a book called Platform Ecosystems by a guy named Amit Tamra. I think I'm saying Tawana. I think I'm saying his name right. He's a professor in the Southeast somewhere. And this was the best book I've ever read. It's quite thick. It reads a little bit like a textbook. It's the best book I've ever read on how to actually break down systems, platform systems and ecosystems. And there are a lot of books out there that will tell you that plat- that ecosystems are important and platforms need ecosystems and give you a bunch of examples of them, but to break it down in the technical sense, like what do the components look like? What does the go-to-market look like? What does the style of partnership look like? Where are decision rights? I thought it was a, a really excellent breakdown. And because ecosystems are really at the heart of what we do in SaaS, I think it's a really excellent book for this audience. Great. 
Thank you. And it was great having you as part of this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.